growth. How about a story? Uh, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. How about a story, huh? Yeah, a story. Tell us a story. Once upon a time, there was a little tiger who lived in a cave with her family. There were a lot of rules, but the big simple one was to never leave the cave at night. And the door was so heavy, you'd think it would be easy to remember. So easy to remember. I know. Uh. But while everyone was asleep, she went out anyway. No! Yes, and no sooner than she did, their cave was destroyed and everyone had to go on this long, sucky walk with some weirdo they met and die. <laughs> the end. Whoa! I did not see that common twist ending. My stories never end like that. Yes, two <laughs> stories in one night! <laughs> Um, okay, um, but it won't be as good as Grug's. <clears throat> um, uh, once upon a time, there was a beautiful tiger. She lived in a cave with the rest of her family. Her father and mother told her, you may go anywhere you want, but never go near the cliff, for you could fall and die. Good story. But when no one was looking, She'd go near the cliff. For the closer she came to the edge, the more she could hear, the more she could see, the more she could feel. Finally, she stood at the very edge. She saw a light. She leaned out to touch it. And she slipped. <gasps> and she fell. And she flew. Where did she fly? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? A place with more suns in the sky than you can count. It would be so bright. A place not like today or yesterday. A place where things are better. Tomorrow isn't a place. It's, it's, it, no, you can't see it. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. I've seen it. That's where I'm going. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, we're going to be talking about tomorrow. That was a clip from a movie called The Crudes. And in case you're like, I recognize that voice. Whose voice was that guy? The, it was Nicolas Cage playing the voice of the... I don't want you on your internet movie database all sermon long trying to figure that out. So, um, Grug is the dad. And as he looks to the future, he is fearful. He is pessimistic about tomorrow. And then he has a daughter, and she's complete opposite. Uh, she is adventurous. She is hopeful. As she thinks about tomorrow, she's filled with optimism. And so in that clip, we have two very different stories being told. I actually think there's truth in both stories. The reason I wanted to show that clip at the beginning of the message, it gets us to where I want to uh, begin. And that is, I wonder what you think of the phrase on the screen. What we believe about our future influences our experience of our present. I love uh, football season, uh, college football on Saturdays. I love watching college football. I love watching my Kansas City Chiefs on uh, Sunday afternoons, and I love my job. 
I am a pastor, I'm in ministry, which means I work a lot on Saturdays and Sundays, and so sometimes I don't get to watch my uh, favorite teams play until after the game is over, and I already know the outcome. I know the final score, and it's a very different football-watching experience when you start watching and you already know uh, the conclusion of, of, of the game. Because what we believe about our future influences our experience of our present. Our Bible reading for today is Jeremiah chapter 29, and there's a verse in our Bible reading, verse 11, that a lot of people love. A lot of people will tell you, Jeremiah 29, 11, my favorite verse in all of the Bible. Let me just read uh, this verse to you one more time. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. And I believe, I trust God's word. God says, I have a plan for you. The plan is good. I have a future and a hope for you. And I believe God. I take God at, at God's word there. And I hope you do too. And if we're keeping it real, there are days, aren't there? There are days when we find ourselves telling ourselves or believing a very different kind of story about the outcome of our life. I think it would be an oversimplification to say there's two ways to go through life. Uh, you can go through life optimistically. You can go through life pessimistically. There's got to be at least a, a third option there, doesn't there? There's probably even more than that. But couldn't you say, I'm going to go through life realistically. I'm 50 years old. I'm part of Generation X. One of the defining phrases for Gen Xers like me is the phrase, reality bites. And that is true some days, isn't it? Some days reality bites, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, yesterday afternoon I was standing here officiating a wedding. And if you asked the uh, groom and uh, the bride, if you asked their parents, what kind of a reality are you experiencing today? Does reality bite? No, they would say reality is pretty amazing. Watching your kids grow up and become adults and get married and have children and becoming uh, grandparents. Like, there are a lot of amazing days in, in our life. That's part of reality. I've, I've been talking about this quite a bit the last couple of times I've preached. And I'm going to keep hitting it because I think it's part of what's going wrong in our world today. We've got to be comfortable living in the faithful, paradoxical tension of life. The, the truth is not reality always bites. The truth is not reality is always amazing. Truth is somewhere in between. And, and so as I was paying attention to what I, I felt like God was saying to me as I was re-engaging with uh, the book of Jeremiah this week, this is part of what I started to think about. What if what's on the screen really is true? What if God does have good plans for us? What if God really does have a future and a hope for us? What if what we believe about our future really does influence our experience of the present, if all of that is true, then wouldn't our expectation be we will have a lot of days filled with an abundance of peace? Because we know how the story ends. We know what God is up to. We know God is holding our future, the future, in God's hand. So we're going to have an abundance of peace. But when I look at our world, uh, when I look at our community, when I have the absolute privilege of talking with people in our church family about the realities that they are going through, there's a lot of days in people's lives this fall 
that are filled with an absence of peace rather than an abundance of peace. And, and that's not me scolding us or saying shame on us for not being more peaceful people. This is me saying this is the reality of life, and it's into the reality of life that God speaks. God's word comes to us in the realities of our life, and God has something to say to us about how to experience reality faithfully. So as we dig into Jeremiah today, let's be looking for clues. Uh, what, what is the wisdom of God? What do we believe? How do we act? That's going to move us in the direction of experiencing more and more peace in our lives all the time. I'll back up to uh, the beginning of Jeremiah 29. Uh, here's verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is kind of the historical context, right? Uh, and, and I want us to put ourselves into the place that the, the original hearers of this message from Jeremiah, what kind of place would they have been in? And just imagine if this was your reality. A foreign enemy conquers your country and destroys your home and takes you and your family from your home to a strange new place, a strange land with strange customs and strange religions and strange language and strange food and everything that used to be familiar and comfortable to you is now unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Think of how that would disrupt your sense of inner peace. Now, thankfully, God has a plan and a future and a hope uh, for the people that were going through this. And so God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write this letter to calm the people down a little bit. Uh, give them a little bit of optimism and hope. And, and let's read together part of this optimistic message from God. Here's verse 10. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. I got your back. I mean, seriously, imagine. Put, let, let's not just go through this really quickly. But let's try to take in what in the world is God up to here? What is it in your life today that's robbing you of peace? What's keeping you up at night? Uh, one way to find out is what is it that you have been texting your group of friends about all week long? Grumbling. Can't believe they did that. Can't believe this is happening. What is it that's filling you with anxiety, sadness, discouragement, hopelessness. What's robbing you of peace? And preacher boy gets up on Sunday morning and says, I've got good news for you, a word from the Lord from you. Whatever that thing is that's disrupting your sense of, of inner peace, good news, it's not going to be around forever. 70 years from now, it's going to be gone. That's what God is saying to the people in exile. I know you don't like Babylon. I know you want to come back to Jerusalem. And good news, I've got a plan for you. I've got a future and a hope for you. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem 70 years down the road. And so God says to Jeremiah, keep on delivering this message. Verse 5, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit, food they produce. Marry and have children, find spouses for them so they may have grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, 
for its welfare will determine your welfare. Your enemy, the ones who have just, they've ripped you and your family from everything comfortable and familiar and completely disrupted your, your inner peace. I want you to pray for them, God says. And I know you don't want to. I know what you want is for your situation to change, for your situation to get better. You want to leave, but I want you to stay. I want you to stay. I want you to stay. You may not understand what I'm doing. You may have questions about it, but I'm asking you to trust me, the Lord says to the exiles. Can we just all admit together, confess together? Sometimes it's very difficult to trust the Lord, isn't it? Maybe I'm the only one. I think sometimes it's very difficult to trust the Lord, and, and all kinds of reasons for this, but part of the reason is because we're hearing competing messages all the time. This is the word of the Lord. No, this is the word of the Lord. No, this is the word of the Lord. That's part of what's going on uh, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not the only prophet. Long before they end up in exile, Jeremiah has been prophesying, predicting, bad news is coming. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be a famine. There's going to be exile. This is the word of the Lord. But there were other prophets in the land in that day, and they didn't particularly like uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah. And they were going around saying, don't pay attention to Jeremiah. This guy is, I mean, he's doom and gloom. He's too pessimistic. And so in Jeremiah chapter 14, there are some prophets who are saying, there's not going to be any war. There's not going to be any famine. The Lord's going to give us peace. But that's not what happens. There's war, there's famine, and there's exile. And now Jeremiah says the exile, God says it's going to last 70 years. But in chapter 28, there's a prophet named Hananiah. Again, don't pay attention to Jeremiah. It's all bad news with Jeremiah. God's not going to make us stay here for 70 years. Within two years, Hananiah says, the king of Babylon is going to be conquered and we're all going to go back to Jerusalem. And at the end of Jeremiah 29, there's another prophet. Shemaiah is his name. He's been upset with Jeremiah for quite a while. And he wonders why no one has done anything to put a stop to Jeremiah. Just close that guy's mouth. It's all bad news, bad news, bad news. True prophets and false prophets. They were around in Jeremiah's day. They're around in our day. Makes it really difficult for us to know who to believe. Who to trust? Let's go back to this verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, we'll put it up on the screen and let's read this. Read it out loud with me this time. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. The clip we watched at the beginning of the message, two very different stories. One ends in disaster. The other ends in goodness and light. Here's God in Jeremiah 29, 11 saying, here's how the story is going to end. It is not going to end in disaster. It's going to be a good ending. And yet I, I know for me, for many of us, when, when we're living the reality of our lives, when we're going through those times of kind of personal disaster in our lives, those times when reality bites, it is very difficult for us to trust this is going to end well. This is going to end with good things. 
it's difficult to trust God's word. Now remember, the word of the Lord said you're going to be in exile for 70 years, and biblically, uh, certain numbers matter. 70 years, the number seven, is an important biblical number. Seven, we often think uh, seven represents perfection, and, and it does. That's part of uh, what the number seven points us to when we see it in Scripture. But it's, it's bigger than perf perfection. The number seven is about perfection, but also completeness and wholeness. So part of what God is saying to the exiles in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah, you're going to be in exile until I finish the good work that I'm doing in you. You're going to be in exile until this good work is complete, until I have made you whole. And part of what God is asking us as we engage with this story, God is asking us, do you trust that God is doing a good work in you in the midst of whatever that thing is that you were thinking about just a little bit ago, the thing that's robbing you of peace? God's saying, that's not a good thing that you're going through, but would you trust, could you trust, God is doing a good work in you in the midst of it? Maybe you just want it to be over, whatever it is. You want it to go away. You want the pain to go away. You want the problem to be fixed. You want a cure. And maybe God is saying, not so fast, my friends. There's a number in the Bible that represents perfection and completion and wholeness. It's the number seven. And there's a word in the Bible that represents perfection, completion, and wholeness. And the word is peace. And I want you to watch this video. Uh, there's going to be two parts to this video. We'll watch the second part at the end. But watch this video that starts to explain what the biblical idea of peace is. Take a look. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. 
And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. Our life just keeps going faster and faster, and it's getting more and more complex and complicated all the time. And that makes it really easy for parts of our lives, parts of our society to get out of alignment. And what scripture tells us is when we as individuals and when we as a community of individuals, when we're out of alignment, God is at work. The, the good work that God is doing is taking all these pieces that are scattered and, and broken and God's putting them back together again, making things complete and whole. And God talks about this uh, to the exiles through uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Here's uh, verse 13. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me, God says. And we're going to talk about this idea of wholeheartedness in just a little bit. But before we do, every time I would read this verse this week, this old song from 1983, Annie Lennox with really short, spiky hair, singing with the Eurythmics. This, the lyrics from this song just started going through my head. Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I've traveled the world in the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Everybody's looking for something. I wonder what brought you to worship today. That's ah, just what we do on, on the weekends. We come to church. Yeah. Really? Is that it? What are you looking for? Everybody's looking for something. Last week, Pastor Mike uh, talked about John the Baptist a little bit. This great man of faith that John the Baptist is, who is convinced early on Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John is telling people, don't follow me, follow Jesus. I must decrease, he must increase. John gets to a place where he is wholeheartedly convinced. He has found what he is looking for in Jesus. And then disaster strikes. He gets arrested and thrown in prison, and he knows what his future holds. He knows he's going to die in prison. And this completely disrupts his sense of inner peace. He's now in inner turmoil. He, he used to have this inner strength that would enable him to speak truth in the halls of power in Israel. And now all of a sudden that's gone and his faith is starting to go as well. He's got some doubts because of the disaster that he's experiencing. So he has a couple of his friends go to Jesus with a question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for somebody else? Everybody's looking for something. Doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for decades, going to church for decades, or if you're brand new to church, you're not even sure what you uh, think about church. We're all here because we are looking for something. And the word of the prophet Jeremiah 2,500 years ago is still the word of God to us today. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Now, what do we find when we find Jesus? What Jesus tells John's friends, go back to John and tell him, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being proclaimed. 
Part of what Jesus is saying in that, he's saying, when you find me, you find a full life. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. You find life that is complete. You find life that is whole. For most of my life, I've been following Jesus for decades, but for most of my life as a Christian, I believed what it meant to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus is everything's going to be good. Happy, happy, joy, joy. And because I'm wholeheartedly uh, devoted to Jesus, there's not going to be very much at all that happens in my life that does not feel good. That's the benefit of being a person of faith. Pastor Ashley is uh, leading a class this fall called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, Let's keep this in the context of emotions as we talk about what do we find when we find Jesus. What what does it mean to be wholehearted in our uh, looking for faith. In the context of emotion, what, what I used to believe is if I'm wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, if I'm a person of faith, then I will only experience those emotions that I label as good emotions, the emotions that make me feel good, joy, peace, love, those sorts of things. If I'm devoted to Jesus, I'll have an absence in my life of pain, sadness, heartache, because that's the benefit of Uh, being a person of faith. The only problem with that, (laughs) it's a pretty big problem, Uh, the only problem with that is if you engage with God's Word at all, you quickly see God's Word points us to a very different reality. God's Word is telling us a very different kind of story. Uh, The the story of, of Scripture is the story of a God who comes from heaven to earth, and Jesus weeps. Jesus experiences loss. Jesus is betrayed by the people closest to him. Jesus experiences excruciating pain. Uh, The night that he is uh, arrested and betrayed, he's in the garden praying, and the scripture writers tell us Jesus is in such agony of spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's sweating drops of blood. Why would God do that? Why why would Jesus subject himself to what we might call the worst of the human experience? Uh, The biblical writers actually talk about this a little bit. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says it's because of the joy that's awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross. Because of a future joy, Jesus was willing to experience the depths of human sorrow in the present. I, I was talking earlier, you, are you going to go through life kind of with an optimistic perspective or a pessimistic perspective, or are you going to go through life with a realistic perspective? Here's the reality. The reality is every single one of our emotions, I have a tendency to label them, these are positive, these are negative. That's not accurate. That's not real. Every emotion is purposeful, is God-given to help us experience the fullness of life that God has for us. And part of what we see when we look at the life of Jesus is the degree to which I'm willing to engage with and experience those negative emotions is the degree to which I'm going to be able to experience those positive emotions as well. For the joy that was awaiting him, Jesus was willing to suffer greatly because he knew there was a great joy that would come as a result. Here's another way of maybe saying exactly uh, the same thing. 
When I limit my experience of negative emotions, I also limit my experience of positive emotions. What do we mean by limiting our emotions? Let's put a picture of a barrel up on the screen and see if this barrel will help illustrate what I'm trying to communicate. So imagine this barrel represents, it's kind of a terrible image, but imagine the barrel represents the full life that God has for us. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. That barrel represents a life that is full, that is complete, that is whole. But what barrels have, they have these staves on them. And again, we'll just keep it in the realm of emotions. So each stave, imagine that as one of our emotions. So there's the, the stave of joy, and there's the stave of uh, hope, and, and there's the stave of uh, some of the negative emotions as well. Heartache, despair, hopelessness, sadness, sorrow, whatever it might be. When, when I talk about limiting my emotions, what I mean is I don't like how some of this stuff feels, so I'm going to pretend it away. I'm not going to feel the fullness of whatever it is that I'm feeling in this moment. Whatever this disaster or uh, the parts of reality that are, are biting today, I'm just going to pretend it away or medicate it away. In our community, we're really good at medicating our pain. One of the ways we medicate our pain around here, uh, we stuff our schedule so full. We're just bouncing around from one activity to the next. Our life is so full and it's so busy, we never have time to stop and actually pay attention to what's going on in our interior world. We sang a song earlier, make room, make room, make room. We're not very good at that. What we're good at doing is making sure I don't have to make room to feel what's really going on. Uh, sometimes we medicate our pain by uh, bouncing around from relationship to relationship. It's too painful for me to be alone, so I'm just going to lob onto whatever the next relationship is that comes along as quickly as I possibly can. Sometimes we medicate our pain by drinking too much alcohol. Sometimes we medicate our pain by false religiosity. What do I mean by that? We know we're supposed to be forgiving people. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So somebody sins against us, somebody hurts us, and we know we're supposed to be forgiving, so we just super quickly say, I forgive you, and now it's all better, right? But it doesn't feel better. Is there more to forgiveness than just saying, I forgive you? Absolutely. Look how much work Jesus had to do. Look what it cost Jesus to forgive the sins of the world. He had to shed blood in order to do it. There's a process to forgiveness that Jesus engages in, and there's a process that uh, we're supposed to engage in. It's, it's a lot more than just saying, I forgive you, and now we can forget it and move on. Or uh, bad things happen in life. There's a job you love, and you lose your job. Uh, your company goes under. You got to do something new. Or you're in a relationship, and you thought this is the one that's going to last, but it ends. Or someone you love dies. And the emotions that go along with those kinds of loss, you're feeling those emotions and it doesn't feel good. And you know you're supposed to be a person of faith, which means I'm supposed to be hopeful. So you say things like God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Which just to be clear is true. God is good all the time. But sometimes we do things and we say things that sound spiritual, they sound faithful, but really what they are, they are Methods for us to avoid feeling the pain that we are in. And, and part of the good work God's been doing in my life the last couple of years is showing me pretty clearly the ways in which I do this. 
If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. We put those two ideas together. Part of what we see, Jesus is saying, bring your whole heart to me if you want a full life. Bring your sorrow. Bring your anger. Uh, bring the hurt from that betrayal. Bring your fears. Bring, it all, bring your whole heart to me so I can do my healing and restoring work in you so you can experience fullness of life. If you refuse to feel it, if you refuse to allow God into those places, you just tap it down, you just pretend it away, we'll never experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of hope and the fullness of love and the fullness of peace that God has for us. And I think there's something inside us that knows this. I think this is part of what was going on on Monday, but I'm not sure we knew this is what we were doing. You remember Monday? Uh, it was finally the funeral of the queen. I think she died two or three years ago. I'm not quite sure how long ago it was, but they finally had the funeral on, uh, on Monday. And there was a media research group called Statista, Statistica, something like that. Their estimate was four, more than four billion people around the world tuned in to the broadcast of this funeral. Four billion people. Are there really that many people on earth fascinated by British royalty? Or is there something else going on? Everybody's looking for something. And I think one of the things we're looking for, and we don't even know it most of the time, we're looking for permission, freedom, to feel our grief. There is a lot that has been lost the last couple of years. The appropriate response to loss is to grieve what's been lost. But there's something about the air we breathe living where we live. Instead of stopping and slowing down and staying with, making room for those feelings that don't feel good and inviting God into that, we're just constantly moving forward. What, what's next? What's the next project? Let's do something. Let's go. Let's move. And there's a part of me that loves that about us. I don't think we would be in this room worshiping if, if that wasn't who we are. But there's also a part of that that is unhealthy. And the word of the Lord to us, I think, is slow down enough, make room enough, invite God into those places of loss. I saw a therapist who's starting to use the phrase, our grief is frozen these days. Instead of feeling our pain, we're like, let's just put that in the freezer. We'll come back to that later, and let's, let's move forward to something that feels better. And in the process, we're missing out on the fullness of life God has for us. And Scripture is very clear on this from cover to cover. This is Psalm 126, verse 5. Read this out loud with me. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Part of what this verse is saying, and I think we all know this intuitively, when I limit my tears, I'm also limiting my capacity for joy. And so we tune into a funeral of a 96-year-old woman because everybody's looking for something. We're looking for a, a, a full life. We're looking for a part of our life that we know we are missing. And maybe, maybe part of what we're missing is the rest of the story because, sure, Scripture is clear. We're reading about it. We're talking about it today. Part of our job, if you want to be a person of faith, Part of our job, part of our responsibility is to pursue God, to look for God wholeheartedly. But the rest of the story, the rest of the scripture story that I think sometimes we forget, we have a God who is pursuing us. 
We have a God who is looking for us, a God who comes to seek and to save us. Just a couple of chapters later uh, from Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah chapter 31, look at what God has to say to God's people, and I'm convinced God is saying this to us today. I've loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love. I've drawn you to myself. Let me ask you one more time. What brought you to church today? What are you looking for? What if, what if the love of God has drawn you here? What if God loves you enough to meet you in whatever that thing is that's robbing you of peace today and do a good work in you? It may not happen as quickly as you want it to happen. But God says, I have good plans for you. I have a future and a hope for you. I have loved you with an unfailing love. I've drawn you to myself. I'm going to keep doing that every day, every moment of your life, drawing you closer and closer and closer to this life-giving, full relationship. If we really believed that, I mean, if we really believed that, I think we would experience a peace like we've never known, a peace that passes understanding, a peace for our troubled hearts, a peace for our weary minds. Think about how troubled John the Baptist is when he sends people to Jesus. Are you the one or should we keep looking for someone else? And it's important to note, Jesus does not scold John the Baptist. He does not say, oh, ye of little faith. What he ends up saying to the people that have gathered around, he says, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, there's no one greater than John who comes to me with his doubt. He comes to me in his fear. He's looking for me wholeheartedly and Jesus invites us to do the same. Through Jeremiah's word to the exiles, through Jesus' words to John the Baptist, that encounter happens at the beginning of Matthew 11. At the end of Matthew 11 are these comforting words to you and to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Trust me. Look for me. Listen to me. And I will give you rest. I will be your peace, is the promise of God. Well, let's watch the last part of this uh, clip on peace, and then we'll sing our closing song. Take a look. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end, a time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say, Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be, but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. 
Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. It's a rich biblical concept. We're going to sing a song now um, that, if we're not careful, can be a song of false religiosity. Because we're going to sing about praising God in the middle of our disasters, praising God when reality bites. And so I just want to pause before we sing it to remind us we're looking for something, and, and part of what we're looking for is a place where uh, we have the permission and freedom to grieve. So I want to invite you to all to stand up and just look around the room. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for disaster. Plans to give you a future and hope. I, I think almost every time we hear those words, we think the you is a singular you. This is God talking to me. It's a plural pronoun there. I know the plans I have for you, the community of faith. And part of what's so important and good and beautiful about the community of faith, some of you are here today, and you're not going to be able to sing this song. There's too much reality biting going on in your life. And I just want you to know that's fine. We're going to sing it for you. We're, we're going to enter the valley with you as the body of Christ, and we're going to sing praises on your behalf. If you're able to do that, do it. If you're not able to do it, just let God be with you in the valley again today. That's being real. That's starting to experience the fullness of life God has for us. Let's sing this together.